City Watch on WBAI here to start your day. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. Thank you for tuning in to WBAI this morning. My co-host David Brand is off today. As longtime listeners know, what we've been doing is alternating weekends, so he'll be back with you next Sunday. If you're new to City Watch, David and I talk about issues that impact New York City, the politics and the policies that keep us running. In particular, whenever I can, I try to bring you discussions with guests who have a different perspective, or we focus on an issue that is very much in the news, such as when we've talked about criminal justice issues or the environment. And recently, I spent an hour talking about animal rights a few weeks ago and got considerable feedback, which means at some point in the future, I'm going to revisit that with new topics impacting animals. Now, the pandemic is still very much with us. If you had read in the newspapers or heard on TV this past week, health experts are warning that this fall could be the worst fall on record if we don't eliminate the virus and if the surges we're seeing across the country continue to escalate. So I do expect that in the coming months, many of our conversations will focus on or even touch on lightly COVID-19 and how New York City and New York State are faring our reopening, and also the city's economic recovery. Interestingly, I awakened this morning after having a dream, and this was the point I woke up, which was so surprising to me, and that's why I'm telling you about it. I woke up amid a dream when I realized I had stepped into a shopping mall without a face mask, and people started to scream at me. That type of stress is still so much a part of our lives. So when we talk about these topics, It's really not to bring you more anxiety, but to inform you, and also, when I can, to also bring you some hope. So the front page of the New York Times, if you pick it up this weekend, you'll see it's not as hopeful as we would like it to be. In fact, it's discouraging because over the last two weeks, the number of people getting coronavirus tests dropped significantly. That went down from 733,000 across the country each day to 700,000. It went down from rather 750 to 733,000 each day after months of increases. Now, that's all because testing remains a major obstacle in a number of areas, and so and so do delays in getting results. I've had quite a number of people tell me they got their test and they waited days, more than two or three days, sometimes more than a week to get results, which in their case would mean that they should have been, if they tested positive, should have been quarantined earlier, but were waiting for results so they would go back and or people around them would have to go back and get uh, tested. So. Even despite this, it is important to get tested, wear a mask, socially distance yourself from others, avoid large groups indoors, especially when it's poorly ventilated, use common sense. New York City and New York State have made significant strides in eliminating this virus, and there are still concerning signs, like the uptick in neighborhoods in Brooklyn that we've been reading about in the last week. Do your part, not just for yourself, but for your family members, for your friends, for your coworkers. Briefly, In other news, and then I'm going to get to my first guest, in other news, uh, if you heard about what was going on with the Tribute of Lights downtown, well, it will be back. They were not going to be doing it for for 9-11, but apparently Mayor Bloomberg stepped in with significant and an undisclosed amount of funding, and Governor Cuomo also stepped forward to say that he would ensure that this could take place. So the Tribute of Lights will beam in the sky on September 11th. Also, if you'd not heard overnight, uh, the president's younger brother, Robert, had passed away in Manhattan. The president had visited him in the hospital on on Friday and learned on Saturday that uh, his health was significantly failing. The uh, cause of death was not given, but there had been reports that he had experienced a number of brain bleeds, which began after a recent fall. And one other uh, development. And you'll hear more about this tomorrow, actually, the next step. The governor has been talking more and more about our reopening phases. So on Friday, he unveiled that 
bowling alleys here in the city, they can resume operations. Now, again, at limited capacity, but also our city's museums can resume operations as of August 24th. However, the caveat is limited capacity, time tickets, staggered entry. As you may know, listeners who've heard me on the show before, I work with one museum, the Museum of, Jew uh, museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust down in Battery Park. They're planning after Labor Day to reopen, and they're going through all these similar steps that other museums are, such as allowing staggered entry, a quarter of the amount of people who would normally be allowed in at any specific, specific time. Also, time tickets, they won't have a box office open there for you to buy tickets. You'd have to do them in advance, so it's limited interaction. So today I've got a great show for you, including coming up later on in the show, a producer of a documentary that's now airing on HBO called Yusuf Hawkins, Storm Over Brooklyn, and then the founder of an initiative called Operation Backpack to support youth housed in homeless and domestic violence shelters. But first, we're going to talk about our language. Yes, our language. I'm certain that as you listen to our first guest, if you're like me, you're going to reflect on the movies and television shows that depict New York or characters from New York, whether it's Woody Allen movies or Working Girl or Taxi Driver or any other where people are from, well, as I'm going to say, New York. So that brings me to my first guest this morning, E.J. White, an assistant professor in the English department at Stony Brook University and the author of a new book called You Talking to Me, The Unruly History of New York English by Oxford University Press. And in this fascinating book, she walks us through why we talk the way we do, how that's evolved, how we even talk differently in different settings and about musical influences, why we say New York and not New York for instance. There's a lot to discover and a lot to learn in you talking to me. And so it's great to have E.J. White here with me this morning. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. So what inspired you to explore this topic? Well, I'm embarrassed to tell this story, but the first time I ever heard a New York accent in real life, I was on my way to college. I had just landed in the Newark airport and a woman walked by saying something in Brooklyn East. I was surprised because I realized at that moment that I didn't know New York accents existed in real life. I had thought they were made up for television. In my defense on television, if somebody's using a New York accent, they're a henchman or they're a colorful villain. They're someone you wouldn't see in everyday life. <laughs> but that memory stayed with me, and I went on to study and eventually teach the history of language. In the book, I, I talk about the accent that I just – sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go ahead. That's fine. I talk about the accent that I just called Brooklynese, what linguists call New York City English, but I also talk about a variety of other dialects that are spoken in the city, like Puerto Rican English and African American vernacular English. Um, New Yorkers speak English in a variety of different ways, but even when you take these differences into account, they belong to a unified language community, one language community that distinctively belongs to New York City. You have this great line, uh, and I'm quoting it, to a great extent, the history of spoken language is a history written on water. Can you explain that for us? So there's so much about the history of spoken language that we don't know and we're never going to know. Uh, one of my teachers said there was an event in the history of English called the Great Vowel Shift, sometime between Chaucer and Shakespeare, when every vowel in the English language radically altered in pronunciation. They got rounded and fronted, to use the technical terms. Nobody knows why the Great Vowel Shift happened. When did educated native speakers of the English language get together and say, okay, next Wednesday morning, 9.30, we're not going to say beat anymore, we're going to say bite, right? I mean, that's not the way it happened, obviously, but it did happen. So to say the history of spoken language is a history written on water is just to say that a lot of it is fleeting and immediately lost, like if you were writing words on the surface of a stream. Um, but... Uh, you know, I'll quote the same teacher again. It amazes me not how little we can do given this disadvantage, but how much we can do in spite of it. So the most recognizable, and as one uh, writer had pointed out, almost stereotypical New York pronunciation is that elusive R. It's important to clarify for our listeners what is rhotic versus non-rhotic. And of course, this works much better on radio to talk about it. This is the most famous feature of New York City English, that it's non-rhotic. This means that the sound R is pronounced only if it comes before a vowel. The rest of the time, you don't pronounce it. So instead of car, you would say ka. Instead of Park Avenue, you would say Park Avenue. Instead of fourth floor, you would say fourth floor. 
what what does it mean to talk New York? Like, and what are some of the noticeable features of a New York dialect? Well, I want to tilt away from pronunciation for just one second. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, talking New York is making room for conversation. That's not being cute. It's just putting the emphasis on sociolinguistics, which is the study of how humans talk in real-life situations. With New Yorkers, conversations are faster. They have more give-and-take. There's more turn-taking, prompts, arguments, interrupting. This is actually measurable. Scholars have spent decades proving this to be true. So to outsiders, this can make New Yorkers seem rude. Oh, New Yorkers cut you off. They're always arguing, always interrupting. But in fact, those very features are at the heart of how New Yorkers are nice to each other. On the other hand, if you want to ask about pronunciation, the most noticeable features of New York City English are non-roticism, oethloa, uh, the vowel in thought, and the vowel in class. This is according to William Labov, the Dean of American Linguists. But, as always, God is in the details, and there are all kinds of subtle features that make New York speech distinctive. For instance, in New York City, men and women have different accents. Men have harder and, plosives, and women have longer diphthongs. And it's so interesting, because you wouldn't normally think of that, that based on gender, you'd hear different accents. Yes. Um, And there are all kinds of mixtures and borrowings, as you can imagine, as people move uh, um, around the spectrum of gender representation. They borrow from each other. So what's been fascinating to me, and by the way, I'm so glad you mentioned that because uh, about uh, uh, even the pace of our conversations and how we're perceived outside of New York, because I've often thought of that. I am someone who... Uh, normally, and I, I resist doing a lot of this on the radio, I want to pause and wait for someone to finish an answer, but I'm normally someone who wants to jump in and, and amplify or ask a question, and outside of New York, I've had relatives say, slow down to me. So, um, how has the language of New Yorkers changed over time? So, the, you talked about non-roticism, the way that New Yorkers pronounce the sound R. This sound has been so stigmatized over the years that it has changed incredibly quickly, again and again and again across the generations. So Teddy Roosevelt could be heard on old wax cylinder recordings, saying, like, the souls of men buoyed with the fire of lofty endeavor. And he's saying buoyed for burned, sort of Bugs Bunny pronunciation. A generation later, this is so stigmatized, even though he was speaking upper-class New York, that Freddie Roosevelt who's, you know, also an upper-class New Yorker, is pronouncing it as burned instead of boined. Um, at the same time, and this is kind of amazing, New York City English as a whole is changing quite slowly. The New York sound means something to New Yorkers. It says something to them about who New Yorkers are, who they listen to, which classes hold their allegiance, allegiance how deep their ties to the neighborhood run. So every living language changes, but... It's important to New Yorkers that their language should at least be different from the language of the rest of the world. Their language is stigmatized, sure, but it's theirs and nobody else's. And, and talk about the slang of the criminal underworld. You go into this in depth, which is just, I keep using the word fascinating. I love this book. Talk about the slang of the criminal underworld. Oh, New York gave us all kinds of wonderful slang terms. Cop, confidence man, up the river, murderer's row, foamy, bouncer, racket. A lot of terms relating to sex work. Uh, The original confidence man was a real guy, William Thompson, and if you read old newspaper articles, it becomes clear that he was as familiar to New Yorkers as the naked cowboy or Times Square Elmo would be to us. Learning criminal slang was essential to New Yorkers as the city was becoming what we would call today a city, because slang is a kind of strategy. It tells you what to look out for. It teaches you an attitude. It teaches you how to survive. Throughout history, there have been efforts, and you write about this, efforts uh, to change our speech. And I'm thinking about our education system uh, and the example of the uh, Board of Education's Bureau of Speech Improvement. Talk a little about those efforts. Explain that for our listeners. Well, uh, New York City's Board of Education used to have a Bureau of Speech Improvement, which specifically sought to change the speech, the accents of children in the city's school system. The idea was that if you could shape their speech, you could also shape them into better Americans. And a lot of this was driven by fear of New York City's immigrant population. 
and by the desire to Americanize the children of immigrants as quickly as possible. So to be very brief, schools used to teach children an artificial dialect that sounded like the language of the city's upper class combined with elements of British speech. You can hear it in old movies. It's what we call the mid-Atlantic accent. Fred Astaire, Catherine Hepburn. It's not a natural accent. It's what children learned in schools and actors used on the stage. I, you know, and I'm, I can't wait for you to put this to rest. I've often heard people say that someone speaks like they're from the Bronx or Staten Island. Do people from Queens, where I live, speak differently than those from Staten Island and the Bronx and Brooklyn and Manhattan? And if not, why do people feel this way? Well, you might get letters if I say this, but <laughs> linguists have been linguists have been proving this true for 50 years. You cannot tell which borough of New York City someone is from by their accent. You can't do it. And people who think they can do it perform worse on tests of this ability than if they had chosen randomly. But I understand where this impulse comes from. I mean, poets use the term genius loci to mean the spirit of a place. And to people who live there, New York doesn't have just one spirit of a place. It's got all sorts of very distinctive spirits belonging to different boroughs and even different neighborhoods. But it doesn't matter. You cannot tell what borough someone is from by the way they speak. However... You can still tell all sorts of interesting things about people from the way they speak, down to the level of what clique they belonged to in high school. Um, there's a guy called Michael Newman who writes wonderfully on this sort of thing. Sometimes the answers language gives us are just more interesting than the questions we were prepared to ask. And, and many words and phrases that are common today that we, uh, that we continue to use originated in some fashion in New York, but with different meanings that evolved over time. Can you give an example or two? Yeah. In the book, I use a lot of examples from policing, but I'll give you one example from firefighting. In old New York, the guys who fought fire were volunteers, and maybe because of this, they were really enthusiastic about fires. Like, they loved fires the way I love musical theater. They loved fires the way Star Trek fans love Star Trek. Rival fire companies used to get in fights in the street over who was going to get to respond to a particular fire. The house would burn down in the meanwhile. Now, in this period, firemen wore buff-colored uniforms, and the word buff came to mean a serious enthusiast about anything, not just a fire. So I'm a musical theater buff. Star Trek fans are science fiction buffs. The word is just a relic of the weirdness of 19th century New York. And what's, what's also just incredible is what's called code switching, how people talk differently in different settings. Before I get to, because we've only got a few minutes left, before I get to uh, our, uh, asking you about an experiment that explored this, just explain first what code switching is. Code switching is when a, spe a speaker changes the way they speak according to various situations. So a politician might speak differently to an audience from the old neighborhood than they do in front of a national audience. Code switching also includes switching between languages. In New York City, one major way of code switching within the English language is to switch between pronouncing R in words like floor and not pronouncing it. So you have the New York sound, floa, and floor, which is the standard American sound. So now let's get to that experiment, because I, I love that this was sort of the culminating chapter. I just love this. The experiment that took place in 1962 involving three department stores where the researcher observed employees at these establishments. Walk us through the purpose of this and what the researcher discovered about status and prestige. This researcher, William Lebov, he realized that employees of New York City's department stores were a pretty homogeneous population. That is the major difference between an employee at Saks one at Macy's and one at a bargain basement was the fact that they worked at Saks or Macy's or the bargain basement. So he started a study where he would walk into a store, ask for an item that he knew to be on the fourth floor, so where are the women's shoes, and then he would listen to whether the employee answered fourth floor or fourth floor or some combination. And he found out that people change the way they speak depending on the status of the place they work for. Employees at Saks used more prestigious pronunciation simply because they were working at Saks. The study was so famous that researchers have been repeating it every 10 years or so. We're due for another redo about now. So, uh, finally, so many movies and TV shows, we, we see characters that we recognize as speaking New York, and this kind of shaped your... Uh the title of your book. Can you talk about that one example and kind of the history of that scene involving Robert De Niro? 
Yeah, so this is one of the most famous lines in movie history. Taxi driver, Robert De Niro, you talking to me? I don't see anyone else here. You must be talking to me. What's amazing is that De Niro improvised the whole thing, the most famous scene in the movie, and it's not in the script. But I think it was actually essential that this scene come out of De Niro's brain because he's from New York City, and the way the character talks in this scene is absolutely characteristically New York. So if you compare this scene with something very similar, which is the scene in Dirty Harry where Clint Eastwood talks at a guy and then says, do you feel lucky, punk? With Eastwood, it's a monologue. He talks slowly, he talks for a long time, and the guy he's talking to doesn't interrupt him. That would never fly in New York City. With De Niro, even though he's alone and talking to a mirror, it's faster, it's more confrontational, with more turn-taking and prompts and repetition. He's talking New York. Uh, De Niro improvised it in a quintessentially New York way. Nobody's there, and he's still getting interrupted. It's great. E.J. White, where can people go to learn more about you and your book? Well, for the book, they could check out Amazon or the website of Oxford University Press. And if they happen to be Stony Brook students, I teach a course on the history of the English language just about every semester. E.J. White, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you. So that was E.J. White, author of You Talking to Me by Oxford University Press. You've been listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM radio, also streaming live at WBAI.org. My co-host David Brand is off today, and I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. So last summer, on an expanded version of the show, I reflected on the 30th anniversary of the killing of Yusuf Hawkins. On the night of August 23rd, 1989, he and several friends had traveled from their East New York neighborhood to see a used car for sale in Bensonhurst, a largely white Italian-American community, and then a mob of young white men armed with baseball bats confronted them, believing that one of them was dating a white girl in the neighborhood, and Hawkins was shot twice in the chest and died. That racially motivated killing galvanized civil rights leaders, undermined Mayor Ed Koch's bid for another term in office, and led to a series of marches, visions of which still horrify to this day. Ultimately, eight youths were charged in connection with the death, and 18-year-old Joey Fama was convicted of second-degree murder, and Keith Mondello uh, was convicted in relation to his role as the ringleader of the group. Well, there's a new documentary that's just out a few days ago on HBO that recalls the crime, the trial, the impact on the city and nation, but also characterizes Yusef Hawkins. Who is Yusef Hawkins? It's called Yusef Hawkins Storm Over Brooklyn, now on HBO. Last year, I was privileged to talk to the director, Muta Ali, and now, with the release of the film on HBO, I've invited one of the producers, Victorious DaCosta, on to talk about Yusef, his life, his legacy, and how his story resonates today, 31 years later. Victorious, welcome to WBAI. Thanks, Jeff. Peace. How are you? All right. Good morning. How did you get involved in this project? How and when did that happen? Well, it was January of 2016, and I got a cold email through my website. And the email said, I was told to contact you about filming a documentary. So it was kind of cryptic, but I reached back out, and it happened to be Charles Darby, who was a childhood friend of Yusuf Hawkins. And he told me that he wanted to do a documentary about him. He had a dream about Yusuf. And Yusuf said, don't forget me. And we took it from there. We researched for about three months. And April of that year, the director, Mutai Lee, and another producer, Javon Frank, came aboard and started rolling. That's how it happened with Cody Mill. I'm glad I got. This film features a number of voices of people close to Yusef Hawkins, more than I've seen or heard from before. And people who've avoided the spotlight and rarely been heard from. What led them to talk about this experience now? I think back then, it was a media circus, right, 89 and 91, and it was intimidating. A lot of these people were children, teenagers. Some of them were just grief-stricken. So I think that um, if you didn't have an agenda back then, you would shy away from the press and telling your story. But after 30 years, I think a lot of people wanted to get it off their chest. And a lot of people, let's say like Luther Sylvester, who was with Yusuf that night, never spoke to anyone since that that night about it. Even when he went to high school, they offered him counseling and he denied it, right? And there are others like Miss Diane Hawkins who had a lot of suppressed feelings, but she was overpowered by what was going on. And, you know, another thing is that Charles Darby was already a friend of Yusef's and the family was 
familiar with him already. And so that gave us the invite and doing documentary whenever you had the family behind you, that opens up a lot of doors. And I, I think that everyone we did interview, whether it was from Bensonhurst, whether it was from East New York, they knew that we were different. We, we weren't trying to exploit Yusef's name. We weren't parasitic. You know, we all are from New York. And I think that made everybody comfortable. And I have to say, I had tried approaching Diane back when I was a New York One reporter covering. Uh, I was not in New York when the incident happened. I was in northern New Jersey. Actually, that's how I had met the Reverend Al Sharpton during several of his marches there after the death of a black youth at the hands of a white police officer. In this case... Um, you, know, you know, I tried to approach Diane. She was not comfortable speaking at that time. She's so central to this film. What led her to talk now? So I think I, I don't know if that was you, but I remember there was someone that knocked on her door a, a few years ago. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it was on camera. You know, that just probably shocked her, right? Just out of the blue you know, with her and especially it being about Joey Fama. You know, again, I'll have to say that we spent about a year talking to Diane Hawkins before we put her on camera, and she got to know us. You know, she calls us son, and again, it was through Charles's relationship. I think that it's, it's different, right? Not everybody likes the cold call or the cold knock on the door. I think she just recognized us as being young black men from the same community, and she felt that we were trustworthy. I think that was pretty much what it was. And, and you know, the family also got together and, and spoke about it. I think it was the family vote, kind of informal vote about what, what should happen. And uh, people do think that Yusef's name has, has been forgotten. You know, there's been a mural in Bed-Stuy since 91, and it's, it's been faded a few times. So I think that the family thought it was time. You know, and even though he could not be interviewed because he had passed away, Yusuf's father, Moser Stewart, who I'd come to know uh, for a number of years, is just a consistent presence throughout this film. And the film doesn't mince words about his fractured family relationships. How would you characterize Moser, Moses Stewart? Well, yeah, I would say definitely his family and friends didn't mince words. They were very honest about his departure from the family. They were honest about how it did or didn't affect them. And they were honest about the vulnerable space they were in when he came back. You know, and this eight months later, his middle son is murdered, and he picks up the pace, right, and gets on the case. And he wanted to, to, to do the most for his son. I think it was a way to redeem himself. I think I would describe him as a, a tragically strong man. You know, um, I, I don't know if any of this would be happening if Moses was not a part of it. But I would reserve the... the uh, the emotional story to the family, you know, again, the, the children say that they didn't really realize that they were missing anything. And then he comes in and he leaves again. So I, I think there, there are no perfect people in this film except for Yusef. And that makes it more of a, a human story. I'm just glad that he did come back. And uh, I'm glad he came back eight months prior to the event. He didn't just come back on August 24th. That would be kind of fishy, you know. And so much was known about this case, but were there moments when Storm Over Brooklyn was being filmed that surprised you, revelations that you just weren't aware of before? Yeah, a lot was reported about the case, but what surprised me is that the, the rumor of Keith Mondello and Gina Feliciano, that just seemed to be not true from all of our interviews and even the police tapes from back in 89, no one really said that. Now, there might have been gossip on the streets and you know you have kids that lie to police i don't think they really could have said exactly what was going on but gina and keith both denied it and uh russell gibbons denied it and so there, there was no love triangle i think that that's something that the nypd might have pushed you know as an early theory the media got hold of it i think it might have been you know what they call sexy news but that's something that just blew my, my mind and in the film we wanted to really pull the shades from that. Uh, Gina, another surprising thing, she was Italian and Puerto Rican. She had a Puerto Rican father, and she did date outside, you know, black, and not outside, outside of her black and Latino men, but that wasn't the problem. The problem is that they came around the neighborhood. If she dated them in their neighborhood and she came back alone, it would have been fine. 
but a lot of black and Latino men would hang out outside of her building. And outside of her building, that's where the neighborhood candy store was. And there were people who didn't want blacks and Latinx people in the neighborhood. So it, it, it wasn't it wasn't as cut short as Keith was jealous because his ex girlfriend was dating a black guy. That that wasn't the case. So that that so, surprised me, and that opened up a lot. And, and Gina Feliciano had passed away, but you are you were able to find footage of her. Taught you know the brief comment that she had made when she had stepped out of the courthouse. But when it comes to Keith Mandelo, now I talked with him uh, when he within that first year of him getting out of prison. That's when he. Uh, had apologized to the family, and then Moser Stewart and Alan, uh, Al Sharpton came to my TV studio to meet with them privately for Mandelo to express his his uh, sentiments to them directly. But he's not in he's in the film, but he's not. There's no fresh footage of him. Did he refuse to take part, or could he not be tracked down? Uh, well, one thing I want to say about that meeting is that uh, Keith did apologize. And, you know, it was heavy on his heart, his heart, obviously. But Moses would not accept the apology unless mm-hmm. Keith gave up the uh, the other names, right? Um, we tried to get everyone whose name was mentioned and not mentioned in the documentary. And we definitely tried Keith Mondello. We tried a few ways to a couple of people. We got close. Uh, I'm pretty sure he was aware that we reached out. It would have been great to get him to say his piece. But I think that when he talked to Moses and Sharpton, that might have been enough for him. You know, um, I'm not here to judge how each person comes to terms with what happened. But we, we did definitely try. But he did not officially decline. Maybe he just found out about it today. I don't know. But um, we, we did try. Yeah, and we, you know, so- we, we have. You know, we have. Oh, we have the, the, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was say what's so interesting with Mandelo is I had heard that he's working for the city now in a capacity where uh, part of his job involves uh, being in Bensonhurst. Not sure uh, if that's still the case, but when I had looked at records last year, it did have him on the city payroll. The, giving up the other names is interesting because one of the other uh, people who had been convicted, who is still in prison upstate uh, today, is Joey Fama, who you interviewed for the film. I spoke with him as well. Uh, some time ago, back when I was with New York One, he still denies he played a role in this today. Um, what do you make of his denials? I mean, right now, he's nearing the end of his sentence. Within a, a year or so, he's eligible to be out of prison. What do you make of his denials that he was the shooter? Well, you know, it's funny. So there's, there's two different questions there, right? So Joey Fama denying he's the shooter and Joey Fama denying he played a part. It's two different things because remember that Joey Fama was not found guilty of uh, being the shooter, per se, right? No one was really found guilty of pulling the trigger, mm-hmm. right? And he was found guilty, he was found not guilty of intentional murder, but they charged him with two different theories in the same indictment, right? They charged him with also murder with depraved indifference, uh, acting in concert. So that kind of leaves him leeway. One thing with Moses would say, acting in concert with who, right? So I would say Joey says that his presence doesn't mean that he's guilty. Um, which is true. In my community, you know, I'm, I'm from East Flatbush, uh, Brooklyn. In my community, it's kind of the opposite, right? If you have one person does the crime and you have a dozen or so youth that are right there, then they are all going down for a gang assault. Everybody's going down for the same amount of time. So, I, you know, we, we didn't want to retry, you know, Joey Fama. We didn't want this, this film to be a tool for his appeal. He is. Um, eligible to come out. I think that everyone in America who is in prison deserves a chance to speak to the board and to prove who they are as a person after their, their time. I think that Yusef didn't get that chance you know, to do that. But I, I think that everyone deserves that chance. And um, it's not for me to say whether he should go free or not. But it's, it's interesting that this wouldn't be a debate in other communities whether or not he was culpable for the for the murder. You've been listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and you've been listening to my conversation with Victoria Stacosta, producer of the documentary Yusef Hawkins' Storm Over Brooklyn, airing now on HBO. 
I have to tell you one of the most uncomfortable, and that's why I was glad it was in there, one of the most uncomfortable portions of watching this film is just watching the vitriol that was spewed at marchers who took to the streets afterwards. What went, like, what goes through your mind when you see this, the, the hatred that people had for one another? You know, I think a lot of us who are you know, on the filmmaking team, we weren't that uncomfortable, you know, had it. We found mm -hmm. it a bit validating. You know, and vindicating because people of the African African diaspora in this country are usually gaslit, right? And they're told that no, I don't, no one out there hates black people, and it's not like that. And so, just to see that and to have so much footage of that, we didn't have to cherry pick that footage, right? We we didn't we didn't have to to sit there for hours to find the most racist comments or just to find the watermelons, you know, because there are a lot of watermelons in there, right? Um, and so it, it was. It was gratifying that we didn't have to spend too much time proving it, right? Because when, when you're black in America and these tragic things happen, the tragedy somehow gets lost in the uh, discussion of, well, was it racist, though? And at the end of the day, a 16-year-old boy w was murdered, whether it was racist or not. But then we get caught up in the, well, was it racist? And we kind of lose the humanity of the people uh, that's involved. Um and the funny thing is that so here's the uncomfortable part, right? The people who are in that footage, they were pretty young in that footage, right? And this is 30 years ago, and a lot of them are probably still alive. I don't know where they live because Bensonhurst has changed demographically, you know, but, but some of them probably had children. And, and these ideas that they had 30 years ago, I, I would hope that they would watch the movie on HBO and change their mind, you know? But that's still around. And if they're not at Bensonhurst, that means that it, it spread around, right? So that's the, the scary part. And, and it is it is such a timely moment right now for this film to remind people of the pervasive racism in this country. Yeah, you know, and, and unfortunately, no matter when we did it, it would be a timely moment. It was a few years ago, a young man named, or a teenager named uh, Deshaun McKenzie who was chased in Staten Island by some Italian kids, and while he was being chased, he uh, had an asthma attack and died. And that was going on when we were filming the documentary. And some would say that that would be a timely moment. You know, if we did it a few years earlier, Trayvon Martin was murdered, we would say that would be a timely moment. So the, the, it's always timely, unfortunately, uh, in, the, in this country. So we've got just about a minute or two left. And as much as I've been talking about you know, what took place in Bensonhurst. I really want to go back to Yusef Hawkins himself. What do you want yeah. his legacy to be? What should his legacy be? Yusef's legacy should be um, one heck of an engineer. That's what he wanted to be an engineer. He wanted to work with trains. Uh, that's what he wanted, right? Uh, but he is now 16 forever. So Yusef's legacy now is this unlucky martyr. Uh, Yusef's legacy, he's a symbol of uh, northern de facto segregation. Uh, but that's his legacy. That's his legacy. You know, he, he is he is cannon fodder for both sides of the issue. You know, he, he is a warning sign on Bay Ridge Avenue. That's what Yousef is. He, he's Bensonhurst, right? Like Michael Griffith is, is Howard Beach. He's Bensonhurst. And, and sadly, his name will always be linked to Bensonhurst. So that that's what that's what his legacy is. And we do hope that people recognize in the uh, documentary there was no, no burning, there was no, there's no looting, any of these things in the name of Yusef. So we hope that any movement under the name of Yusef is as pure as he was as a 16-year-old boy. And he was a, a, a pure child. Uh, and Victorious, where can people yes. go to learn? Where can people go to learn more about you and about the film? I'm going to ask you to go to stormoverbrooklyn.com and uh, you can go to any social media site and you can hashtag Yusuf Hawkins. And I want to spell that because it's normally spelled incorrectly. It's Y-U-S-U-F and then Hawkins is H-A-W-K-I-N-S. Hashtag Yusuf Hawkins. You're going to find me. You're going to find the other the director, Mutali, and you're going to find the movement. Oh, one thing I wanted to say is that if you go to HBO, there is a discussion guide 
that the Brooklyn Combine created, and there are resources for some grassroots organizations in the area if people want to know what, what they can do now with what's going on timely-wise. Incredibly important to see. Victoria Stacasa, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thanks, Jeff. You've been listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. You just were listening to my conversation with Victoria Stacosta. I uh, encourage you, if you do have HBO, to please uh, make a point of watching Yusuf Hawkins' Storm Over Brooklyn. Yes, there are uncomfortable scenes, but there are also enlightening scenes, and it is just incredible to hear uh, from Yusuf's mother, Diane Hawkins, Uh, who, as she, it is even conceded in the film, was very uncomfortable speaking publicly, but here she does all these years later. It's just an incredible film. I encourage you to watch it. So we're just a few weeks away from the new school year, and while many districts across the country have opted to delay in-person classes because of persistent COVID-19 concerns and continue solely with remote learning, here in New York, the scenario is going to be different, a mix of remote and in-person instruction. And about... Three-quarters of city students are going to return to public schools this fall. That's about 700,000 students. Uh, but I've also I've been working with one group called the Partnership for the Homeless, and they've talked with me about some of the issues that students who are experiencing homelessness and living in shelters or some of the hotels now are going to be facing this fall. It is a significant concern that a number of advocates have. The 2020-2021 academic year is going to present myriad problems for families and in particular for children and teenagers in the city. One of the organizations that's been making a difference right now is Volunteers of America Greater New York. And just one way that they're doing this this month is through a program designed to help thousands of children who are living in homeless uh, or domestic violence shelters here in the city through what a program called Operation Backpack 2020. So joining me now to talk about this is the initiative's founder, Rachel Weinstein, who also serves as Vice President of Communications and External Relations at Volunteers of America Greater New York. Welcome to WBAI. Hi, do we have Rachel on? Hi, do we have Rachel on? Hi, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. We're just experiencing a little technical issues right now. Hopefully we can resolve them in a moment. Hi, Rachel. Okay, so as we're just getting ready to get her on the phone, I just wanted to remind our listeners Uh, that we are in our fundraising drive for the summer. So if you've been listening to the show or any shows on WBAI, just take a moment. We're uh, non-corporate, non-commercial, and community progressive radio. Been around for 60 years. It would be wonderful if you could show your support for us. Uh, Just becoming a BAI buddy or giving even a one-time contribution to WBAI to keep us on the air. It would be wonderful if you just have a few moments. And there's multiple ways you can do that. One of those ways is to just give us a call. And that number is 516-620-3602. Again, that number is 516-620-3602. Or you can go online to the uh, web address, give to, that's the number two, give to wbai.org. That's give to wbai.org. Uh, And there's one other way. If you're on your phone right now, this is what works best. Just text 
text WBAI to 41444, and then follow the prompts on your smartphones. It's as easy as that to show your support for us. One thing you can also do, if you go to the website, you will see under the uh, gifts that you can get by becoming a donor uh, to WBAI is one of our face masks. I, base, I ordered two of them. I've been showing them off most days when I uh, wear my face masks when, when I go outside. It is a WBAI face mask. That's for a $35 donation. So I order two because when one's getting washed, I wear the other one. I encourage you. That is a way to support BAI and also do your part to help eliminate COVID-19. So as I mentioned, we're just a few weeks away from the start of the school year. We've now got our guest on the line, Rachel Weinstein. Welcome to WBAI. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I'm so sorry about the tech issues. Uh, since we only have we only have about seven minutes left with you, I'll go almost to the very end of the show. Talk about what Operation Backpack is and its history. Okay, sure. Um, so 17 years ago, just about. Um, when I joined Volunteers of America um, as a staff person, I was visiting um, our various programs, our domestic violence shelters, our homeless shelters, our housing for people living with HIV AIDS, and the list goes on. We've got 80 social services programs. And I happened to be at our family shelter on the Upper West Side, just a few blocks from where I lived, didn't even know the shelter was there. Children were getting on a school bus without backpacks. And I turned to the staff and I said, where are the kids' backpacks? And they looked at me like I had you know, I don't know, like I, I didn't know what I was talking about, which I didn't. Um, and the kids were going to school with nothing. And they said, don't worry, the teachers will give them something, give them what they need. So as a mother who had just been shopping for my own daughter, of course, I was very disturbed by that. Came back to my boss and said, we have to do something. And being volunteers of America, you know, we go in and we um, we put a program in whenever we can if there's a need in the community and we're the best, you know, we're, we're able to handle it. We have the funds, we have the partnerships, whatever. And so that was the genesis really for Operation, what would become Operation Backpack. And originally um, the goal was just backpacks for our 600 children living in our Volunteers of America shelters. And by year three, you know, New Yorkers are so generous and they're so engaged and who can't get behind school um, because school is so important and education is what's going to break the cycle of homelessness and intergenerational poverty. And because of the generosity of the community, we were able to keep expanding um, until um, what started as that fairly, you know, small goal has now become uh, we outfit the entire city shelter system in all five boroughs with backpacks. So any child in any shelter, not just a VOA shelter, ours are only eight shelters, but we do, I think this year, about 240 shelters and the hotels, of course. Any child who needs it, who's in shelter, can get one of our backpacks. And, and these backpacks are great. What do you estimate the goal is this year, but how many would you like to be able um, to distribute? Well, what we want to do is 18,000. Right now, currently, the number of homeless families uh, in shelter has declined over the past couple years, which is a great thing, except that, you know, we're now very concerned, as is the Department of Education, as is the Department of Homeless Services, that the numbers are going to rise as if the um, eviction moratorium ceases, if people stay unemployed, um, out of work, if the uh, if unemployment benefits go away, and we are very concerned that families are going to come back into the shelter or for the first time enter the system. And so what we're shooting for is um, to not only give the about 17,000 children currently in shelter, school age, um, a backpack, we're also shooting to give PATH, which is where all families entering the system for the first time have to go through get processed, we're hoping to give them another 1,000 or 1,500 um, sets of supplies and backpacks. So children entering the system after we've already allocated all of our backpacks at the end of August. So these new kids entering will also have supplies. Because in, in previous you know, years, Oh, in previous years, the way we run these type of events, you know, would you'd gather people together, you'd, you know, you'd go, you know, you do something publicly. But given this new world, you know, when we're socially distancing from each other, talk about how you're overcoming the challenges. 
Oh, we, we have been completely upended because Operation Backpack, the reason it is so successful is that it, it, it expects and needs and has people showing up, right? So last year, over 300 companies held drives for us. Um, and then for the last four weeks, what culminates in what we call Sort Week, um, we have about 2,000 volunteers from these companies come in big teams. So it's a great team building opportunity for them. They have a great amount of fun. They come, they quality control all the full backpacks that the public has donated. Typically, the companies, the public donates nine to 11,000 full, beautiful backpacks. So we have great variety because people go to stores, they shop with their kids, and they deliver to us all these wonderful backpacks. None of this can happen this year. So we can't uh, accept or expect, and we didn't, um, a single full backpack from the public because companies aren't, you know, they're still shuttered. Everyone's working remotely. And we also can't have people touching things and sending us things. So we, we felt like this year it was more important than ever for the children to have something constant, something to look forward to, something normalizing. And and we wanted to be sure that they understood that no matter what school looks like um, come September, whether they're showing up in person, when they're working from their unit in their shelter, that their education is important, that they're important, and they're not forgotten. So what we did was we pivoted, and um, it's costing us hundreds of thousands of more dollars, which is why we're frantically raising all that money, but we're purchasing um, boxes of prepackaged supply kits by grade, so the four different grade groups. And the shelters are going to, instead of picking up new full backpacks from us this year, they're going to pick up cartons of boxes of supplies and bags of backpacks. And then the dictionaries are separate because they're donated and they're, you know, they're a wonderful, beautiful dictionary by, Har- you know, from HarperCollins. And um, so they're going to hand each child a box of supplies and a backpack. And if they're an older kid, a dictionary. If they're a younger kid, a drawing pad. And so that's what we're doing instead this year. So the and, kids and are still going to get the supplies. They're going to get a backpack. The backpacks aren't. <laughs> what happened was 10 days ago, um, normally we have this wonderful um, donor who chooses to remain anonymous, who gives us 10,000 gorgeous you know, brand name um, backpacks. And about 10 days ago, he called and he said, Rach, I got to tell you, it's not going to happen um, because of his distribution change. Truckers are out sick. They, I mean, it just went on and on. And he was mortified. But so 10 days ago, all of a sudden, we're, le- we're learning that we are short 10,000 empty backpacks. And so that's one of the things we're raising money for right now. So I've got just about a minute and a half, half left. Who are your partners on this? Uh, well, great partner is Walgreens and Dwayne Reed. Uh, I really didn't, I had no idea they were going to do so well, but they offered their customers for two weeks. They invited their um, customers to donate when they checked out, and they expanded to not just include the city, but all the way up almost Albany, and they raised $112,000 for us in two weeks. So that was amazing. And, and when does this then, fundraising effort end? It doesn't end. <laughs> I mean, because we're always, you know, fundraising for the next year also. But right now, I still need, right now, I still need $250,000 in order to give every child a backpack. Right now, we're close to the supplies, but, you know, I still need the backpack. I still need, uh, we just purchased a couple more electric um, pallet jacks. Um, We can't have the 70 volunteers per shift we normally have. It's only my little group, my Volunteers of America staff, like five of us. And we can only have like four or five volunteers at a time. So it's like we're exhausted. I wanted to get my folks as much, you know, as away from the manual as possible. So that was the present of the pallet jacks. Um, and, um, you know, so that's that's the story. So it, there's no end. Um, donate Operation Backpack NYC.org. You can go on, um, give money to one of the fundraising teams. We've raised about $190,000 on there so far, which is amazing. You could form a team or just donate, donate OperationBackpackNYC.org, and we would be incredibly grateful on behalf of the children who will benefit. Rachel Weinstein, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you, Jeff. 
So I want to thank Rachel, as well as my other guests today, E.J. White, author of You Talking to Me by Oxford University Press, and Victoria Stacosta, producer of Yusef Hawkins' Storm Over Brooklyn, now on HBO. Of course, I would not... Uh, it would not be correct for me not to thank our wonderful engineer, Sean Rhodes, back from his vacation. Engineer extraordinaire who makes the show happen each week. Technical difficulties are always my responsibility, so I take the blame for them. I will be back this Thursday at 5 o'clock with Driving Forces to talk about what else? The Democratic Convention and much more. So stay tuned also for an announcement on WBAI's Twitter feed this week about the lineup of guests. And again, my co-host David Brand will be back with you here on City Watch next Sunday morning. If you want to follow me on social media where I announce guests each week, Twitter handle is Jack Heights, J-A-C-K-H-I-T-E-S. But also go to WBAI.org. Check the website. Top of the page, you'll see the range of guests on all of our shows. Have a great weekend. listener and supporter of WBAI. I'm a student at NYU and I live in New York City. And I want to shout out to the other young listeners of WBAI. We have to help keep the station going. And the easiest way to do it is through the WBAI buddy system. If you donate as little as $10 a month, you have proactively promoted free speech radio. Go to the website WBAI.org, click the donate button, and make a difference. The census is a count of everyone in the United States, no matter your immigration status. The census count is how our communities get billions of dollars for programs that we all rely on. You'll be able to do this online or even over the phone. Now let's go through some of the questions. This looks easy. So the census asks, how many people live in your home? Do you rent or own everyone's name, how you're related, age, ethnicity, and home phone number? So me and my wife, we have two kids. I'm 40. You get the idea. Your information is completely confidential. By law, it cannot be shared with anyone. The census only comes once every 10 years, and 2020 is our chance to get it right. I poured out that day the torrent of my long-accumulating discontent with such vehemence and indignation that I, I stirred myself, as well as the rest of the party, to do and dare anything. Elizabeth Cady Stanton on the eve of jumping into the fray. August 26th marks the 100th anniversary of women winning the vote after fighting for it for 75 years. WBAI will celebrate with six hours of programming from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. with authors, historians, dramatic readings, a play, period music, and more. We'll make this history come alive and find out what it has to teach us for today. That's Wednesday, August 26th, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. For a schedule, go to WBAI.org. Thanks to you. Thank you for thinking of me. And I thank you. I thank you. Let us say thank you to all you people out there. I want to thank each and every one of you for coming by. And while he's thanking those folks, let me take this opportunity to thank all of you, our listeners and support staff, our contributors, our interns, the volunteers, producers, and the entire crew that works countless hours to bring WBAI into your lives. This is the professor, Dr. Ron Daniels. The Institute of the Black World 21st Century's Black Family Summit proudly announces the Community Cares Listening Line for Black first responders and essential workers. We're here and we're listening. The Community Cares Listening Line is a free, confidential service staffed with responsive volunteers 
who can provide emotional support and share information with our callers. If you're feeling anxious, afraid, distressed, burdened, or overwhelmed by a range of emotions, please call the Community Cares Listening Line at 877-719-1117. That's 877-719-1117. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM. My name is Bill Samuels, founder of NYPeoplesConvention.org. WBAI is New York's leader in progressive talk. Whether the issue is prison reform, education reform, the legalization of marijuana, or women's rights, the people's issues are covered on these airways. So stay tuned for the best and leading-edge progressive ideas and analysis. And remember to support independent media.